Hello, and welcome to the Weaver on-chain podcast series. I'm your host, Tim Savage, and I lead Weaver's blockchain and digital assets practice. In this series, we dive into various topics surrounding the blockchain industry, and each show features guest speakers who are deeply involved in this space. On this episode today, I am thrilled to introduce our guest speaker, Lee Bratcher. Lee is the president and founder of the Texas Blockchain Council, an association that seeks to make Texas the jurisdiction of choice for Bitcoin, crypto, and blockchain innovation. The TBC was foundational in two pieces of Texas blockchain legislation that were recently passed by Texas legislators and signed by Governor Abbott. The TBC also recently hosted the Texas Blockchain Summit in Austin, featuring Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Cynthia Lummis, and SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce. Lee is also a captain in the U.S. Army Reserves, working as a tech scout for the 75th Innovation Command that supports the Army Futures Command. Formerly, he was a political science professor at Dallas Baptist University, teaching international relations and blockchain courses, and he is in his sixth year as a Ph.D. candidate at UT Dallas with a research emphasis on blockchain land registries. Lee, again, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show today. Tim, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so to kick us off, I'd love to just hear about how you first got interested in the crypto space. Yeah, I was researching blockchain for property rights uh, at as an academic several years ago, probably six, seven years ago. And I was at the Army War College doing some research that about how property rights can mitigate conflict in um, developing nations. So if you're more secure in what you own, then you're less likely to engage in, in conflict. And through that, I discovered Bitcoin, I discovered blockchain, I discovered blockchain for land registries. Uh, there's this Peruvian economist named Hernando de Soto, uh, who wrote a book called Mystery of Capital. And in that book, he estimated, and this was in 1999, he estimated there's about $8 uh, trillion worth of real estate that's owned by the world's poor that is improperly or not at all titled. And therefore, they have no um, use for it as far as collateral or in the traditional banking and finance systems. And so that that's my exposure. That was my initial exposure to to blockchain and um, then fast forward a few years, uh, I start to advocate uh, in the policy world to see some adoption for, for blockchain, for Bitcoin and crypto. And uh, I formed the Texas Blockchain Council in late 2019 um, and early, early 2020, got it right around the pandemic and uh, things got kicked off. And, and I, I do this full time now. And um yeah, we, we do policy, we do business development, we bring bring people together and find our, our member companies their their next client or or their next investor and uh, just generally make a lot of introductions. That idea of property rights is it's foundational to blockchain. And I listen to a lot of Robert Breedlove and he talks about property rights all the time and, and it's really helped me understand this is such an important thing to have having an advanced um, you know, economic system as a society. And, and I love what you're doing with the TBC. I've gotten to go to several events and hear you speak among uh, other folks that, uh, in, in the organization. What motivated you to go out there and, and establish the TBC? 
It was generally an observation that the the Bitcoin and crypto ecosystem specifically uh, and the blockchain more broadly was struggling with narratives, was struggling with communicating effectively to politicians and, and regulators. Uh, it was more confrontational early on rather than collaborative. And so I looked at that and said, well, that's that's not going to work. The the uh, regulators and the policymakers and elected officials are far more powerful than the industry at this point, um, and they will crush it. And so I thought we need to we need innovation to flourish. Texas is a great place for innovation to flourish. The United States as a whole is a great place, and innovators and entrepreneurs and investors were going overseas. And so wa watching that dynamic play out. Um, motivated me to start the, the Texas Blockchain Council. It, we're a nonprofit industry association, a C6 rather than a C3. So less of a charity and more of like a, a, a chamber of commerce. Well, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. I think it's remarkable. And I'd actually like to circle back to hear more about it later, but maybe to segue into today's show's title topic, Bitcoin theory. I'd like to start the conversation with why Bitcoin is a much different cryptocurrency than everything else. And when I first got back into the space back in 2017, I actually glazed over Bitcoin and initially focused my investment thesis on Ethereum. And as I look back, the reasoning for that was I actually thought Bitcoin would just be the first of many versions or would eventually be superseded by something else. And it, it took me actually a year to finally realize that, whoa, Bitcoin is really its own standalone asset class among all the other cryptos. So how do you perceive Bitcoin and understand its utility? Very similar to you, I think, based upon what you just said. Um, Bitcoin is a different asset class. So when I describe what we do, I say Bitcoin, blockchain and crypto. So I... I specifically um, you know, lump crypto into one and, and bring Bitcoin out. And then blockchain is its own even broader umbrella. Um, and, and Bitcoin is its own asset class because of some features about Bitcoin that make it different than other crypto. And crypto, Ethereum is absolutely leading the pack. Um, the Ethereum is the king of the other crypto category and Bitcoin is its own, it's kind of the king overall in its own asset class. Similar to, I would argue, real estate. So, so in, in, stay with me for, for a second. Bitcoin has a, a finite amount. There's only ever going to be 21 million. It is not a, other than the Lightning Network, which is growing tremendously right now, it's typically not a transaction layer type asset. It is similar to, you know, and similar to real estate. Real, real estate is, you know, historically and famously illiquid. Whereas, uh, you know, Bitcoin is is a store of value. It's an asset that can be lent against. You can use it as collateral. Um, it has all those properties that real estate has. It's anti-inflationary. It's, it's a good asset to have in an inflationary environment. Um, it's only 10 years old, whereas real estate is, is thousands of years old, right? So as, as an asset class. So it's that there's a big difference there in, in real estate's favor, right, over Bitcoin. Here's a, a, a something in Bitcoin's favor over real estate is that it is native to the Internet uh, and it is creating. And, and really, for those of you that are less familiar with blockchain and, and Bitcoin and as a whole, 
what Bitcoin, what the white paper, the true invention of what we're all talking about here is digital scarcity. It's being able to um, solve the double spend problem in a digital environment. That's why we still use all the analog systems to transfer value over time and space like ACH and SWIFT. And uh, that's why Visa is a network and they charge you 2% on transactions or is 30% plus 1% or 30 cents plus 1% sometimes on transactions. Um, because they're having to, on the back end, settle these transactions in an analog way. And by analog, I don't always mean paper, uh, but I certainly mean um, in a traditional, you know, double entry accounting sense. Uh, and sometimes it is paper, but um, we could go. So let me briefly go into this accounting piece, although the irony here of a non-accountant talking to people in the finance sector and accounting sector about this uh, the way I think about it is Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain is the next iteration of double entry accounting. Uh, double entry accounting was invented 500 years ago by a Franciscan friar named Luca Pacioli uh, for the purpose of allowing people to trade goods and services without having to know or trust the other person across across time and space. And uh, it served us very well for, for centuries. And the whole industries have been built around that that concept and so you know accounting and finance is now being transformed it's being automated sure um i don't think it's being disintermediated it's just being changed and so the the accounting finance firms that um embrace this technology will have a massive advantage uh, in you know potential market share uh, against their competitors as, as they will be, they will be more swift. They will be more effective, uh, and uh, it, it'd be it'd be like saying going into the the early '90s and telling a retail company, um, "Hey, you need to start using the internet, and that's going to be that's going to drive sales in the future." Uh, I think that's kind of where we are in this in this uh, evolution. So yeah, that that's a really good explanation. And last week we, we talked about actually blockchain technology as a whole, how it's going to propagate through the world and really change our, our daily ways of doing things, of transacting with each other. And I certainly agree accounting firms, tax firms as CPAs, as we kind of evolve in this industry, we will have to keep up with the times and, and change the, our methods of doing things and how we look at transactions or audit transactions and so it will definitely change the industry as as a whole. And when I look at Bitcoin specifically as a cryptocurrency, you know, you hear that term cryptocurrency, but I never really truly understood the currency section of it until again, it took me about a year to have that light bulb on it moment of, oh my gosh, this actually is money. And then I was like, why is this money? You know, and it forced me to kind of look at different things. I read the Bitcoin standard. I listened to a lot of podcasts. And, and what I realized is as we look at what makes money money, there are several different properties that define what is good money. So divisibility, portability, durability, is it fungible, verifiable, and most importantly, scarce. Scarce. Yeah. <laughs> and I, 
the example I give is, especially right now in this time of very high inflation, you know, I don't want to prepare tax returns all day and do all the things that I love to do and then put that into a money system that's going to be devalued or inflated away even 8 10%, definitely not 20 to 50% over several years. I would rather put it into this asset that's going to store that. But I think that's what people really struggle with is why is this, you know, actually how does this store value? But it does a great job at storing value. How do you explain that to someone? One of the things that I think is interesting to start with is the proof of work consensus mechanism that makes Bitcoin unique. Uh, and there is a storage of value piece even in that. And then we can talk maybe a, a little bit more about the these uh, aspects of Bitcoin that make it fungible, uh, you know, that it's scarce and, and divisible, etc. Um, proof of work is the consensus mechanism by which the uh, Bitcoin network is secured and new, tra new transactions are added to the blockchain. And so every 10 minutes, a new batch of transactions are, are added. Uh, and in that process, there are, you know, miners, and we call them miners, they're, they're sort of, they're not full nodes, but they're, they're just miners. They're, they're operating with a copy of the ledger and they are uh, hashing to solve a cryptographically complex math problem. And um, once they accomplish that, they're rewarded in a, a block reward, a block subsidy. Uh, currently that's 6.25 Bitcoin and that's having every four years. So there's kind of a, another uh, deflationary uh, or, or the amount of, of Bitcoin that's entering the network is, is uh, exponentially decreasing over time, right? Because every four years it's having. So the, the network that, that does this, all these miners, they consume power, they consume energy. And proof of work is really demonstrating proof that you've gone through this you know, process of throwing hash and throwing hashes at this equation until you've you solved the equation. It's, it's really easy to back check once you've, all the other miners and nodes can say, oh yes, that miner you know, that solved the, the, the cryptographic equation and they have earned the right to form the next uh, and there's consensus around that. And then that miner forms the next block and, and that it's attached. And then there's a hash of all the previous blocks on that block, uh, which creates this uh, immutable chain of transactions over time. And um, the, the interesting thing, though, is about the energy use. When Bitcoin miners use energy, they are storing energy, which is value, which is money in a sense. I mean, energy equals money, right? Um, especially at point of sale when you're selling gas, solar, wind, whatever. Energy, it, energy is a way that developing countries become developed countries. Like energy is the pathway for advancement. And um, when you combine energy with technology, then, then you've got like two of the primary drivers for advancement of society historically over the last, you know, thousands of years. So, um, Anyways, I digress. The, the, the key is understanding that as you store this value, the value of energy is proof of work in Bitcoin. You own, if you own Bitcoin, you're sort of, you, you own a, a pent up energy, if you will, a demonstration of energy, demonstration of value. And um, when people say what's backing Bitcoin, there's two things. There's the proof of work 
system, the energy that's backing it, that's security, that's all these things. And then what's ba what's backstopping the price of Bitcoin is generally supply and demand, uh, the scarcity component. So there's there's almost those two competing definitions of the word backing, what's backing it, right? And people are coming at that question from this historical knowledge of, well, the dollar used to be backed by gold back in the uh, you know pre-1972 until Nixon uh, took us off the gold standard. So that's really not the right way to think about Bitcoin or anything digital, right? Because it's not physical and we don't want it to be. That would be problematic. We want it to be uh, scarce. We want it to be secure. We want it to hold value over time. If it accomplishes all those things, I think it's really difficult for us as Americans to, to zoom out and think about this, right? Because most of us have been alive, or at least our conscious memory has been during the fiat era between 1972 and today. Um, you know, I was born in the 80s, so I wasn't even around when we, we had the gold back dollar. Um, and, and we don't really have a concept for money other than the US dollar. And that's probably good. That demonstrates that we are very fortunate in the course of human history that our entire lives, the currency that we earn is the world's reserve currency. That's a really great asset to have at our disposal. But um, that's not been the case for most people uh, in history and not even most people today in the world. And so Bitcoin adoption is actually more rapid outside of the United States. And believe it or not, we just got some survey data back um, from the state of Texas where we surveyed likely voters and not us, a professional polling agency uh, with a, a massive you know, number of respondents with a 2% margin of error, um, that the adoption rate for uh, underbanked minority communities is, is much, much higher than the uh, Anglo communities in Texas. Um, and so African-American and, and Hispanic communities are adopting this at, at a much higher rate uh, really, regardless of socioeconomic status, but especially um, those communities that are, are um, you know, African-American communities that are on the lower socioeconomic status and Hispanic communities uh, are adopting it even faster than their African-American and Hispanic um, friends and colleagues in the upper economic uh, echelons. So it's, it's really interesting to see that um, the adoption rates are unique and and there is it's a signal to say hey um if you felt like you didn't have a lot of opportunity then bitcoin is the great equalizer um because it is it is not um you can't um stop it really i mean the the word that i'm looking for is not coming to me but it's it's censorship resistant that's it can't be coerced yeah can't be coerced exactly so that, that was a long rant, uh, but I'll, I'll leave it there. It was so good, though, and it, it was a lot. So let me try to unpack it. So we started off with proof of work, and, and let's actually visit that towards the end, because um, I think it is really important to the Bitcoin ecosystem. But maybe focusing on the, the fiat discussion. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand our monetary system in the U.S., and I, I tell everyone I talk to about this is that, hey, we are so blessed to be in a country where our our dollar is used almost everywhere in the world or it's recognized everywhere 
you know, almost everywhere in the world. And it just so happens that it is the reserve currency. But it's not immune to things like inflation. And in fact, since 71, I think we've hit about 80% inflation since then. So if you had a pension or you know, a retirement that you've been saving since then, it's somewhere in the 60 to 80% devalue range. Uh, so that's not a good store of money over time. And maybe touching back on those, those properties of good money, um, Bitcoin really has perfected those properties. It's divisible up to a hundred millionth of a, uh, a zero. Uh, it's incredibly portable. You can send it all over the world. It's definitely durable because it's internet based. As long as we have the internet, it's not going to degrade and the, the network is up. It's fungible, of course, and verifiable because it's in this <laughs> encrypted algorithmic system. And the scarcity is so important because that's actually what drives deflationary Austrian economics. And, you know, not something that I want to dive into too much. I hope to have an episode where we talk with an economist, actually, and go into Keynesian versus Austrian economics. But that will be a later day's conversation. Um, I think it's a good point, though, that to, to recognize that the fiat system, as good as our dollar has been, it is not immune to breaking per se. Whereas Bitcoin, it really is, as you mentioned, it, the great equalizer. It, it affords opportunity to those who adopt it, and especially those, I think, that are adopting it now. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think, I know we don't want to live in this Austrian conversation for very long. We'll keep this very brief. I have one thought on it. Um, I, I'm interested in the Austrian School of economics because there's a slight difference between hardcore Austrian and a uh, middle of the road Austrian, which would be considered hardcore by the Keynesians, I guess. Um, the sort of the, the Hayek camp or the more moderate camp that, that, that is open to some government intervention regulation, um, I think fits really well with the Bitcoin model because Bitcoin does have you know, core developers and it, it has, you know, Bitcoin improvement processes and things there are, then, then there's, you know, the code is, is has guardrails and it's a uh, slow changing uh, beast, if you will. So it's not fully anarchic like the hardcore uh, Austrians. I, I know that's just a, a observation maybe. Yeah. And it's also, you know, we equate it to digital gold sometimes. You know, Austrian economics had gold to work with as a centerpiece for their economic system, whereas now we have something that is more technology-based and a lot more fluid to, to help effectuate Austrian economics at a macro-level scale. So maybe to kind of switch up where, where I guess, the direction of the conversation, I, I want to talk about Ethereum, actually, because... I think Ethereum is amazing and it's allowed through smart contracts and the Ethereum virtual machine basically to have a computing platform uh, based on blockchain and enables decentralized finance and all the new cool things that we're seeing. But I think it's important to note that Ethereum is not perfectly scarce. It's, you know, there's an inflationary aspect to it and then you have, as you transact, Actually, that Ethereum gets burned. There is an annual supply cap. 
But I, I think if we compare the systems, Bitcoin versus Ethereum, as monetary systems, currency systems, uh, Ethereum, I think a lot of people like to argue that this is a better money system or proof of stake is a better system. And I tend to disagree for a couple of reasons, but I wanted to first get your thoughts on that. You know, Ethereum is very unique because uh, it is one of the, the first Turing complete uh, projects. And of course, there's been many like it, but uh, the, the amount of de developer community around Ethereum is, is impressive. Uh, so that's one thing that's certainly going for it. It's not as it, it isn't inflationary and not as you know, the sound money principles aren't ex existing in Ethereum like they are in Bitcoin. But the, the move to proof of stake by the, by the Ethereum, Ethereum, the Ethereum Foundation, excuse me, is really the the debate between it, it's Turing complete versus slow moving architecture and then proof of work versus proof of stake. So I think on two different planes, you're you're seeing um, pros and cons, right? Uh, all of these consensus mechanisms have trade-offs and Ethereum needs more throughput, they need more speed, they need lower gas fees, so they're moving to proof of stake. Uh, proof of stake is, in my opinion, uh, not as, it's inferior to proof of work, but I understand why Ethereum is doing it. it they need uh, a more efficient method of, of consensus and they need more throughput, more transaction speed. So while Bitcoin's consensus mechanism is inherently stronger uh, and more secure and it's also more democratic if you will uh, with proof of stake it's a little bit similar to the fiat world in that those that have make the rules um, those that have the largest stake I mean uh, I think there is going to be again trade-offs there's going to be theory things that ethereum is able to do uh, that developers are able to do on Ethereum that you would not be able to do on Bitcoin. And um, I'm not here to make any value judgments between the two other than to say it's just going to be different. And I think there will be value added by both. Uh, while I think Bitcoin's value is more macro, it's socioeconomic, it's po monetary policy, it's all these things. On the Ethereum side, it's very much more technical. It's decentralized applications. It's DeFi. It is different. That's the, the best way that I can describe it. It's it's um, it's hard to compare. It's apples and oranges, really. Um, yeah. and, and you're talking about just trade-offs, in my opinion. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. It's They're almost not comparable. They're two different systems. I mean, I, you know, Bitcoin's use case, like you said, is kind of this macro monetary system. And I think Ethereum has many more use cases beyond just purely being money and um, now, I think Ether is, is kind of like the gasoline that powers all these other digital asset ecosystems, whereas, again, Bitcoin, it's got one job, and that's to be money and, and to store value. Um, but maybe over a long-term scale, as this technology and as cryptocurrencies you know, proliferate through our world, do you think Bitcoin or, or Ether would be a better base you know, layer monetary system? So monetary system, Bitcoin, hands down. I think that describe the, the advantages that Bitcoin has are in clearly more geared towards um, being the monetary system. Um, as far as the applications that you and I will use um, from a 
consumer or user perspective, I think Ethereum has the edge there. Uh, and it, you're right, it's so much more varied. It's, it's um, non-fungible tokens. It's, uh, and again, I'm not big on NFTs from the perspective of digital art or the whole board ape craze. But I think there's something there when you're talking about tokenization of securities uh, within securities law. I think a lot of securities laws, out, uh, a lot of NFTs are operating outside the bounds of securities law currently, which is problematic. But you're talking about tokenized real estate. That's already a security, right? It's, it's regulated like security. It is a security. When you tokenize it, you make it more liquid. Um, it, regardless of what platform you're doing that on, I think a lot of that's happening on Ethereum and others. And. Um, none of it's happening on Bitcoin that I'm aware of, but uh, maybe on stacks on, on Bitcoin, perhaps. But th that is, I think, transformational, maybe not as transformational as a new monetary system, but uh, certainly transformational in the, in the real estate space uh, or the private equity space, for that matter, so a family owned business. And you want to tokenize a family owned business. Uh, and you want to market it on a secondary market so that you have more more investors. You know, currently a private-owned business has very few options. They can sell a portion to people that they know, or they can sell a whole business to a you know, in an M&A or, or an acquisition to uh, a conglomerate or an investor, private equity group, or whoever. But um, you can have so much more flexibility as the owner of a small business or a Privately, it doesn't have to be small. It could be a large privately held business that doesn't have public market liquidity. Uh, if you have access to, you know, selling those ownership shares, tokenized ownership shares on a secondary marketplace. Yeah, it's that tokenization of everything, and basically, it's like crowdfunding things that people have common interests in, and I think it's amazing. All, all possible because of decentralized applications and what Ethereum has done. Now we see other competitors coming up, Solana, Cardano, I guess Avalanche, all those, the new ones we're starting to see that are really popular. And I think that's where the race to evolve is happening. But as, you know, again, we have apples and oranges here. Bitcoin is its money, is a monetary system, effectuates healthy macroeconomics versus, you know, these other things that effectuate um, the evolution of day-to-day -day transactability. Yeah, I think that's well said. Well, very good. I, I know we're kind of coming up uh, at time, but maybe I just want to, if we can end with, you know, where where do you see Texas Blockchain Council being involved here and how can people get involved? Absolutely. We are texasblockchaincouncil.org. I'm at Lee underscore Bratcher on Twitter. Um, we're on Twitter, LinkedIn, all those places. We have a YouTube channel that's got some educational content as well. And uh, as far as the policy landscape, we're, we're primarily focused on Texas policy, um, uniform commercial code, which is, as you guys know, business law. We've got some work that we've already done and we're continuing to do on that front. Uh, we do interface with some of our national counterparts on advocating and lobbying for national policy as it pertains to the SEC, IRS, tax law, um, crypto tax law is a mess. Um, so uh, you you guys probably are busy on that front. Um, but um, 
if people want to get involved, I think getting on the newsletter, coming to our events, we have in-person events in Dallas, Houston, and Austin, a uh, big policy conference in Austin in, in the fall upcoming. Uh, and we are sort of grassroots in a way. Like we connect with legislators, senators, and state reps and um, regulators, and we connect with voters and connect with people that are excited about this innovation that want to see Texas be at the forefront of it. And we give voters that that vehicle through which to influence their legislator to, you'd be surprised. It only takes five or six voters calling a legislator's office to get them, you know, uh, making sure that their staff is getting read up on this and briefing them. So imagine if 600 people call your local state rep or state senator, then they're thinking that the world's on fire and this is the only thing they need to be thinking about. So <laughs> they're very responsive and uh, we, we've enjoyed working with our legislative champions. So moral of the story, pick up the phone, call your legislators and and get them to start effectuating some change so we can get good policy here. Yeah. Um, phone calls are better than emails because it requires somebody else on the other line to pick up and uh, it resonates with the person a little bit more. Emails can be, you know, responded to quickly or deleted. Well, thank you again, Lee, for being here on the show today. Great conversation and so thrilled with what you're doing with the TBC. I will continue, obviously, joining those events when I can and uh, hope to see you there. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me on.